Hi, Anika. Welcome to 11 Questions. Hi, it's so nice to be here. And I'm so excited to have this chance to connect with your listeners and of course you as well. So thank you for having me. I want to start by asking, are you a tea person or a coffee person? Oh, no. Am I going to get my Indian card revoked? I am actually a coffee drinker. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're going to get your card revoked, especially when your book has chai in it. <laughs> chai in it. I think it changes depending on who I'm with. So when I'm at home, my family and I get together first thing in the morning and in the evening to have a cup of chai um, to kind of start the day and then end the work day. But when I'm home at my apartment with my husband, it's always just coffee first thing in the morning. So I think it depends on if I'm around my family or not, then it shifts accordingly. But I like also Indian coffee more than a latte or an American coffee usually as well. Yeah, I can agree with that. The taste is definitely different. Yeah, like proper Chennai filter coffee is the single best drink ever. It's so yeah. strong. And so I always have to limit it because I feel like as my old age is increasing, my acid reflux is also going up. So I can't <laughs> drink it in the quantities I want to drink it or that I used to be able to drink it. And now that's changed, but it's so flavorful and so such a great start to the morning whenever you get a cup of that. I know. All I'm thinking now is like after a recording, I'm going to go get it from like South Indian restaurant here because <laughs> I don't know yeah. how to make it. <laughs> Oh, no. So I'm South Indian and my dad is such an amazing cook. And so and just generally, even with everything, even our chai, even our coffee, he's the one that always makes it. And so his is spectacular. So I think I'm very pampered. I think that's also the reason I don't drink it at home because I can't make it the way he does. Maybe it's just that he has more love infused in it. I don't know. But his is the, the best in my mind. Or maybe there's a secret recipe. I want, that, that is also very possible. I think he's nailed it. <laughs> and how did you get into podcasting? So about two and a half years ago, my best friend said, you know, I think you have a lot to say. You should start a podcast. And I said, I don't really have the time to do a podcast because I just started a new job in New York and moved. And it was a lot at, at once to handle. And of course, I thought about it for about a month. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start the podcast. And so I actually put a call for co-hosts out in a Facebook group. I got a ton of responses. And I actually chose from a series of Google Forms. And get this, I did not actually listen to their voices. I was that new to podcasting. I didn't listen to their voices before I chose them as co-hosts. We ended up actually originally having six, uh, which is too many, as you know, for an audio format where they don't have a visual component to it. And so we dropped from six to three, launched with three, and then eventually the third co-host was starting a business, so she dropped it off as well. So now it's just me and my co-host, Nehal, going forward. And we got into it because we listen to a lot of crime podcasts. Oddly enough, we don't listen to a lot of factual news articles or news type podcasts or narrative podcasts in any way, but we just listen to murders apparently. And I just realized this is a great format to be able to connect with people across the globe. And it's a great place that people are starting to to come to. And we landed in a really good time. So we launched two years and four months ago. And so there was a really good time to break into Brown podcasting at the time. Exploded since then and we've been really lucky with the success that it's had. And your podcast is called The Vogue Desi. So I want to yes. ask, what's something that you love about the Desi culture? Just one. I would say the community can be, of course, problematic or issue-driven like any other community in the world. But I love that when someone has a wedding or someone has a problem or when someone comes to your house, 
most families that I know are come in, come in, come have a meal, come stay with us, come be treated really well. And let's offer you some hospitality and welcoming feelings for walking in our front door and be a part of our family. And I think that's the most magical part at the end of the day. I also love the colors and of course the flavors and the whole vibe whenever you go to a family gathering. It just makes you feel so magical and like such a part of something whenever you go to a Desi event of some sort or a family gathering of some sort. And at least my experience has been largely positive with those things. And what's something that you don't like about the Desi culture? Also many things. <laughs> I think the stigma around a lot of topics that we have, which is probably the answer most people will give, but things like mental health, infertility, having a baby, not having a baby once you're married and not caring, um, being, having a baby whether you're married or not, um, dating, all of the, this judgment that comes and how that can very much limit the people who want to go out and be free and just live their life. It really dictates how your path is set out in front of you. There are so many people breaking out of that now, which is so inspiring. But at the same time, when you're a part of it, you also realize how much strength it takes for people to go and do those things and to go live their life according to how they want to. Now, since you podcast while also working your day job, what's something you find really challenging in continuing with the podcast life? Consistency has been the key from the start, but this summer was very challenging because my co-host was going and doing nomad life. So she was going city to city and her stability was a little shakier and she was trying to cram in all of these experiences in all of these cities that she was visiting because it's a short time frame and she just wanted to grab life and run with it. And at the same time, I had writing things that were happening between this release and my book too and writing other projects. And also a day job that's really demanding. And and of course, having a family and, and doing a little bit of traveling back and forth between my hometown and New York as well. So there were a lot of things in play. And just being able to balance and put out something quality was really hard. And I think that balance generally is very hard on a regular basis from start to finish. People always ask, how do you balance writing and podcasting in your day job? What does a work-life balance look like? And my joke is always that I cry a lot. But the fact is, is that I think a balance is never possible. I think that it's ever elusive and that if you put that pressure on yourself to constantly seek out the balance, you probably will not find it. But if you know and you go in with a healthy perspective about, I'm going to drop some balls, it's inevitable, I'm handling a lot right now. My standard on certain things someday will be 100% and I'm going to get everything right. And some days I'm not going to get anything right. And it's okay on those weaker days to think of that's still my best and I'm still putting out whatever I can put out and I'm going to have to cope with that. Or even being willing to say, okay, today podcasting and writing are a priority and maybe it's a slow day at my day job or the opposite where I have to say my day job is overwhelming everything right now. So writing is going to have to take a back seat every once in a while. That looks at, that also means looking at my marriage and looking at my husband and saying, you've got to tackle everything household related, whether that's cleaning or whether that's dealing with our family or whether that's planning our wedding reception, whatever it is, you're going to have to tackle every single one of those things because I can't do it. I think it's really healthy to recognize that we are going to drop things, especially during these times for the podcast in particular, and obviously for all of us, but the last year and a half has been challenging. Every single day, we're coming up with new adjustments that we have to make to a constantly evolving situation, whether that's, you know, send your family members to school. Oh, wait, never mind. Now they're back at home or, you know, you're working from home or you're working from work or them changing it and saying, come back to work, go back home, you know, and all of these different things and trying to constantly cope and recalibrate to adjust to those things. It's, it takes a lot of brain power and sometimes you don't have brain power to 
left to keep going with all of the other things on your plate. So it's really important to also recognize where you stand with fatigue mentally, what your plate can carry and what things are going to have to fall off of it completely for a day or maybe forever and really constantly check in with yourself on that. So I think with the podcast, it's always been time management has been the roughest thing. And the summer consistency is really tough. Did you also always want to be a writer or is that something that happened on the way? I always did, but I don't think that I knew that was the end game for me. I knew someday I wanted to write a book. And that's what everyone says, right? Someday I'll write a book when I have the time. And I always thought I will write a book. I will 100% write a book. And it will probably be about my experience as an Indian American, but I don't know what it will look like. And then right before graduate school, so this was 2012, I was about to go get my MED. And I had about six weeks off from quitting my job and school starting. And I was like, I'm going to do it right now. And I'd also just gone through a breakup. So I think I needed some place to channel my energy. I wrote the book really quickly and eventually that became my first book, The Rearranged Life, which came out in 2015 with a smaller press. Now it's no longer available on shelves actually um, because the, the company went downhill pretty quickly and so I pulled the rights and so it's not available. But right around the time I pulled the rights, I also ended up getting this deal for three books with source books. And I was really lucky that my agent was advocating for me behind the scenes. So I ended up getting this and, and continuing forward with my writing career as a whole. And I've learned a lot about myself in the last few years. So I think my writing is slowly transforming too. This story is a little bit more conservative than I, I am as a person. And it's a little bit more, I don't want to say extreme. It's softer than I think I am as a person also. Now as a person and as a writer, my stories I know are going to get more and more bold and more and more like me than maybe this one was. And the more I do it, the more I'm realizing this was my purpose the whole time. I've never had something happen with any career that I've chosen. I've been a teacher. I, like I said, I got my master's in education. I've been, I am in healthcare. I also have a master's in public health. And these roles that I've had have all felt like part of my journey, but they've never felt like the destination. Like I sit so comfortably and I know this is exactly what I'm meant to do. But through the writing process, even on the worst day, I still wake up kind of excited about what's coming. And I am always, always curious about what's coming. And I think that right there tells me that this is exactly where I'm meant to be in the writing is the place that I found myself. And writing, even with the podcast, even with books, even with blogging or anything else, the stories that I've told in all of those capacities, how even though they look different across all of those platforms, have always made me feel like I'm coming home and I'm discovering something about myself. And I think that that at the end of the day feels like, okay, this is exactly where I'm meant to be. This is this is my purpose. This is my passion. This is where I'm was this is what I was born to do in some regards. So I think it took a little while to get to this place, but yes, I do think that this is something that was always destined for me. Do you follow a writing routine? I've gotten better about it. I did not before, which is why I think I'm so slow at writing because I was not particularly disciplined. I'll be completely candid. I wasn't hugely disciplined about it. I would write only when I felt inspired. Over the last six months, over the last year, actually, that has changed a lot. And now I do a lot more writing on a daily basis. And I try to make sure that it doesn't have to be three chapters a day, but it should be something a day. And that has really been amazing. And now I feel very incomplete when I don't have a part of my day, whether it's in the morning or in the evening that I write something. In terms of routine and writing style, I think I used to be more of a pantser. I used to say, okay, I'm just going to get from point A to point Z, everything in the middle I can just figure out as I go. 
with Love Chai and Other Four Letter Words, when I submitted my manuscript to my editor, she was like, okay, I love this story, but your climax is happening at 50%, not 75% through the book. So we're going to have to work on this three-act structure and fluff up the front half a little bit. And it took a little while for me to go, okay, maybe this panting thing is not working in my favor right now. And so for book two, I actually ended up outlining everything and not all the details, but just in this chapter, this is what's going to happen. This chapter, this is what's going to happen. And hitting all the plot points of the three-act structure and then going in and filling it in. So now I'm more of a plotter and a pantser, which is now part of my routine. When I wake up in the morning and I want to write something, I see how I feel because I write also based on how I'm feeling for the day. So if there's a heartbreak scene, it's probably because I was having a bad day. And if there's a very happy scene and my characters seem particularly enthused, I was probably in a very good mood writing it. So I'll look at how I'm feeling and then I'll pick one of the scenes from the outline and say, okay, this is what I'm going to delve into today. And so that has become part of my routine now, just kind of examining this outline, kind of letting it sit a little bit and then figuring out where I want to go. I always have, usually have a cup of coffee or chai when I'm writing also. That's also part of the routine. I just feel like I have to do something with my hands. When you're not writing or podcasting, what do you like to do? I love to travel. I feel like it's a very generic, basic answer. I love restaurants as well and trying different places that are vegetarian friendly and that are flavorful. And I've gotten very into farm to table organic kinds of places because I'm very curious to see how, particularly places like vegan places, how they make their food so innovative and so delicious because I think even as a vegetarian, we have preconceived notions about diets that are different than ours. And so sometimes I like tr- trying things that are a little bit different. We go out and do really goofy things a lot. My brother and my sister-in-law live about an hour away on the other side of Manhattan. And so we often hang out with them and we'll, I love football. So American football. So we'll watch uh, a lot of college games in the fall on Saturdays. And my husband and I both like also the NFL. So we'll watch that on Sundays as well. Love sports. There's almost always a sports game on that we're watching and movies and TV shows as well. And obviously I love reading. If you could go on a vacation right now, where would you go? London. That's my answer every time. I've been there twice, but I would still go back anytime, I think. And that's like my soul city, the place that I would want to move if I had the opportunity as well. So just I love Europe as a whole too, so probably Paris. But I also have a lot of places I haven't gone that I would love to go. And if you were to be deserted on an island, which three books would you take with you? Only three. Okay. Um, anything by Sonali Dave. Because I think that she writes beautifully, firstly, but also writes such high drama that in a boring place like a deserted island, it would kind of give you a little spice. I love Emily Giffen's novels. She writes a lot of women's fiction. And um, I just like her stories. I always get lost in them. And they're a good distraction from life. There's a book that came out probably 15, 20 years ago now. But it's called Adored by Tilly Bagshaw. And it was one of my favorite books for the longest time. It was very glamorous and really well-written, and I really loved it. And I would probably take that one because of the nostalgia. Also, the story about like the starlet and Hollywood is very glamorous and very different than my life. So I think it would be very sweetest. And for our last question now, if you were to pick one interesting life experience to share, what would you tell today? Also, only one? I feel like that's like my answer for every question <laughs> that you've asked. I would say just moving to New York which I know sounds very mundane because so many people do it on a daily basis and it's really not that unique. But all that came after moving to New York was absolutely exceptional, which was signing a book deal, starting a podcast, getting a new job, finishing a graduate degree, 
living with my brother for a little while and bringing us closer as adults, meeting the man that I ended up marrying, exploring a bunch of places I hadn't gone to, and leaving New York often to go on trips that I'd always dreamt of. So the lights that I wanted all came from moving to New York. So that would probably be the experience as a whole that I would say was the best one. That's amazing. It sounds like a turning point in a movie or something. That you it was very much a turning and point. All these amazing things have happened. Yeah, I think about my life and that's always the one that I come back to as like the moment that everything changed. Life grew a whole bunch of new branches and roads that I got to go down. And it was because of that move, which was quite frankly, the most terrifying thing I've ever done. New York has scared the hell out of me since I was a kid. <laughs> I didn't like coming here when I was a kid. I grew up in central Pennsylvania. So when I used to visit New York with my family and we used to bring relatives here and show them the Statue of Liberty and things like that, I hated it. I thought it was overwhelming. There were too many people. People were not nice. It was crowded and it was loud and it was dirty. And I just thought, oh my God, this is not the life for me. But when I moved here, it was also for an internship and there was something that was just, you have to move to New York. And I could not figure out what it was, but I just had to follow it and it worked out really beautifully. So now I look back and I'm like, I'm really glad I trusted my gut on that, even though I was so scared to actually do the thing and get over here. And I still think it's overwhelming and loud and sometimes dirty and sometimes not very nice, but it's also shaped so much of my life now that I can't take it back and ever regret any move that I've made here. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. And now I also want to talk about your book, Love Chai and other four-letter words that just came out. I think the title, Having Chai in it, is like a hook for me. So I want to know more about the book. What's it about? Why did you write this particular story? Sourcebooks, when I had mentioned in 2015, they had asked for a series for me. They had said, can you write something based on your South Asian experience? And I said, can you give me a little bit of guidelines on this? Like, what would you like? And they said, anything. Good luck. You just come back with some sort of rom-com story. Okay, that's fine. I actually rewrote this book three times because it wasn't meeting what they had envisioned. And I don't think it was completely formulated because I wasn't sure what they were looking for since it was signed like they said on proposals. So when we got to this place and my editor finally got it and she said, this is it. I felt like the story, the reason that Love China, other four letter words ended up being about an Indian transplant and a Caucasian American guy was not because it's revolutionary. Nowadays, when we look at our friends, it's something that people face a lot. It's not really a huge thing, especially not from a family quite as conservative as Karen's. But the reason that I brought it up was because it is still very much a reality of this generation in the United States to see their friends, to see themselves, sometimes marrying outside of our culture and getting some pushback from it. The varying degrees of pushback are something I fully acknowledge. Some families are so cool about it and other families and friends is my own who have had a lot of trouble before they were able to get down that route and be able to end up with the person they wanted. It also caused quite a few breakups. And so the first book in the series, I kept it relatively conservative in terms of plot and relatively common in terms of Indian American, American American, um, and combining them because it was something that all of my friends were going through and it was so common across the board. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to write about a series of friends, 
that I want to pull from the experience that people are actually going through. And this is one of them. So let's just roll, roll with that and see where the plot takes us. And I felt like it was more conservative than even I have actually imagined. My family is conservative and traditional in some regard, but also not to the point where they would ever disown me or you know, put me through any real psychological trauma to be able to be with someone. I met my husband on a dating app. Um, it wasn't set up. It wasn't anything. My parents had, they met him and they ended up loving him and they all got together and, you know, hung out and stuff like that before we got married, but it wasn't a very traditional setup. So this was writing from a new place, but it was also writing from a place that I'd also seen in my own families. I've seen my family in my communities. People get disowned. People go through a lot of trauma to end up with people. And we love to think our society has evolved so much and they have. And I really am so glad that especially younger, 20 year old Indian Americans can be like, oh, our communities are not like that at all. And I'm like, I'm really glad that that has been your experience and that things are changing. But for people who are even 30 and 40 and 50 and who are Indian American, it's not unheard of to hear it. Even if you haven't experienced it yourself, your circles have probably had that happen some, some degree. So that kind of inspired this particular story. But then with regard to the series as a whole and all of these characters who fall all over the literal Indian map and also the conservative story to liberal story to wild and crazy rom-com to how the heck did we get here kind of love stories. My whole point was to show that we exist and that we take up space and that South Asians are not a monolithic culture as a whole. We, we talk about it as South Asian culture, but there are thousands of cultures within it. And parts of India look different from one another. Compare it to parts of Pakistan, compare it to parts of Bangladesh, and you're just going to get thousands and thousands and thousands of stories. And hopefully this illustrates one of a billion. And hopefully it resonates with those readers who have not seen themselves a whole lot in literature yet. and all those writers that we talked about on that video that were promoing my book, hopefully there are more of us that come out. And in the next 10 years, we just flood literature as a whole and get to show people what our cultures look like and take up space. And, you know, that has inspired that entire idea and that entire concept has inspired this series as well as anything else I'll write, just to show the broad range of our people and what we look like and how it can look so different from family to family from friend to friend. Yeah, and I'm loving that now there are so many stories of South Asian authors. There are so many South Asian authors that are writing now that takes us away from that becoming one story representing billions of people. Even on the podcast, I kind of gravitate towards South Asian authors for that reason because I feel like it gives me extra pleasure to talk to them or see their books that, yes, one more story. And also, we don't have to be just sad stories for the world, right? Like, we can have happy stories, rom-coms, just like Hollywood has. I love that. And I think that romance in particular is often kind of pushed down on and seen as a literary genre that is less than. But I think young adults and romance in particular have extraordinary power because we're shaping the, the people that are coming up that have to see themselves in the world and see and recognize and be given that hope that they exist and that they're, it's meaningful when you're looking at young people. And then also for romance, what more can you do than put more love into the world when you're writing these stories and showcase your cultures and the problems and the beauty and the issues that all come up that are realistic, but also frame them in a way that makes people think I'm deserving of this. Because the, a lot of society pushes back on people of color and says you don't deserve as much as everybody else. And these are, you know, there are readers out there who pick up books, for example, with black characters and say, oh, you guys fall in love with us, fall in love like us. 
and in those moments when people give you that feedback, you're so shocked at how different exactly people view you simply because of the color of your skin or the place that you're from in the world. And I really hope that all of us as writers, as we continue to put out these stories, really show and demonstrate that the stories are different from one another and that ultimately love does look very similar across cultures, even if the challenges maybe look a little bit different. Um, because it blows my mind when I hear comments like that. And I see still on Twitter through author friends, people say things like that to them thinking it's okay. I think that comes from that lack of space that basically didn't exist for our stories, right? Or you could uh, see romantic comedies or romance books or just like the normal phases of a human life only with mainly white people so far. It's a very recent change that other people have started getting into that space. That's why I said, like, if you only read sad stories about us, about people from India or like any South Asian country or even for black people, that's what the Western audience thinks that this is all their stories are. Like, as if we are not real people with the whole spectrum of emotions. And it's, it's funny too, because as a writer who sits on the cusp and as, as there's not enough of us to be able to accurately tell all of these different stories. So if we write India and we say, and in a particular scene, let's say India looks poor, a lot, the writer gets a lot of heat because they're like, well, you're presenting India as poor to the world. But on the opposite side, India has a huge wealth disparity. If you're going to write about bougie rich people, you better write the hell out of it because there are some really amazing lifestyles out there with really nice hotels and nice clothing and immense wealth. There's also a huge discrepancy. So you have to be able to portray it accurately from your perspective. But on the other hand, the sad thing is that we also have to take into account that those stereotypes exist. Are we reinforcing them? Are we not reinforcing them? Are we writing our story the true way it's supposed to be told? Or are we writing for... Who do we make happy in the grand scheme of things? Do we make a reader happy and only po- write the positive things? Or do we have to dive into a bunch of other nuance that we wish we didn't have to dive into because it was common knowledge? There's a lot of challenges that come with that. It's not woe is me at all. I'm, I'm happy to dive in. It's more just that there's not enough of us yet. And that's really readers are so desperate to see themselves in these books that these critiques hit hard. But also they're very valid because they're like, this doesn't speak to our experience and it doesn't experience, speak to the places that we've seen in the stories that we've lived. We need you to do that for us. And there's just so, there's a finite number of authors right now and a finite number of stories that are getting told. And so until there's broader representation across the board, there are going to be missing pieces and there's going to be stories that aren't being told accurately. And until that shift happens, the Western audience is still going to think that we're all these sad, tragic third world country people who apparently don't have love stories or good family relationships or anything like that. So it's kind of a weird what came first the chicken or the egg situation but you have to change something somewhere and hopefully as these books come out not only mine but everybody else's that are also coming out we start broadening that field and pulling more people onto that stage to make sure that all the experiences are highlighted i also feel like as readers when you read stories of let's say white people you just think it's story of that white person but when it comes to reading stories of let's say south asians it's like a representation of sorts. Like that's way too much pressure to put on that character if you're not putting it on every other character you read about. That's a really good point. It actually reminds me of something that my boss said at work once. My boss is Black and she is obviously female and she is a dean at an Ivy League medical institution. To get to where she was is already, whenever we go into a lot of these board of trustees meetings, we are the only two people of color in the room which is intimidating as all help. Like you walk in and you're just 
like this, these are all white men and white women and they're going to talk right over. And she goes very, she's already introverted. So she goes very quiet a lot. And I was talking to her about that once. And she said, if I make a mistake and I, she grew up with this, especially in academia and especially in STEM, she said, if I make a mistake, it's reflective on all black people. And I thought, my God, that pressure is immense to carry. At some point, when do you get to the point where you're going to crack? Not just for her, but for anybody who's the minority in the room, whether it's someone whose sexuality is not necessarily, you know, cishet or whether it's looking at a person of color in a room, what kind of a pressure is that that we're putting on people to be representative of an entire population? Whereas white men in particular can write whatever they want and be seen for each individual book as, oh, that's just a component. It's just opinion society. <laughs> They, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not reflective of who they are. Whereas, you know, we write a story and suddenly there's, there's so many different attacks. There's so much pressure to succeed. And, and I think that we also, we carry that for ourselves and we put it on other people because we're, we do want those stories told so badly and we're not there yet. So it, it's fully understandable. I think those concerns are so valid, but I wish it would change because you're so right. It is an immense amount of pressure to put on people. Yeah, I hope so too. And I also want to know if you're working on anything right now, like your next book. Yeah, I just turned in book two, two weeks ago for this series. And it follows File, who is one of Kieran's best friends. And she gets, it's more of a rom-com style story. There is some culture in it, but it's not quite as heavy as Kieran's, as far as I know, unless my editor comes back and says, hey, you might want to dive in a little. But it's a little bit more of a, a typical standard rom-com. And I'm also working on kind of a bold manuscript right now that's a women's fiction and it has a lot to do with sex and brown women. And then on top of that, I have a couple other manuscripts that are floating around editors at the moment. So hopefully something will come of those. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of irons in the fire at the moment, but I can't talk about any of them because I don't know (laughs) where we are in the process. So uh, so yeah, book two is definitely coming. It's slated for release right now, tentatively September of next year. Oh, cool. Not so far. Yeah, hopefully not too far. I feel like this last year has been, or last year and a half has been so crazy slow and also so crazy fast. So I don't know what this is going to look like September from a year from now, if it's going to feel the same way or if it's going (laughs) to feel like, man, that took forever to get here. (laughs) And if listeners want to buy your book, how can they do that? You can do it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. If you're international, then you can go to Book Depository. And if you want to support a local indie, then go to bookshop.org. And it should be available at all major booksellers and stores, but you can always go to those places specifically. Thank you, Anika, for being a guest on the podcast today. It was really great talking to you. Thank you so much and for having so many thought-provoking questions and listening to me ramble. I appreciate it so much. (laughs) And I'm really looking forward to having these episodes come out and getting to connect with all of your listeners. And Listeners, if you want to find me, I'm at Anika Sharma on Instagram, which is probably the place that I'm the most active. But you can also follow me on Twitter. And uh, I would love to connect with you. So don't hesitate to send a DM. Thank you for listening to our conversation today. Hope you enjoyed getting to know our guest as much as I did. You can also watch a video version of this conversation on 11 Questions YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening. And if you like this episode, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at 11QuestionsPod for more videos and updates. And I'll be back next week with a new guest. Bye!